My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 35, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Exodus 12, Leviticus 9, and Psalms 114. Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people they are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the doorframe of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over it. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a last ordinance, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another on one on on the seventh day. Do not work at all on these days, except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast. From the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day, for seven days no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreign or native-born, who eats anything with, uh, with yeast is... And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. 
When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frames and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborns in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had driven, been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt." Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On, on this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Leviticus 9. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, Take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, and pr present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, Take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with olive oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. 
They took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses said to Aaron, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them, as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came to the altar and slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. His sons brought the blood to him, and he dipped his fingers into the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. The rest of the blood he poured out at the base of the altar. On the altar, he burned the fat, the kidneys, and the long lobe of the liver from from the sin offering, as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the hide he burned up outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering. His sons handed him the blood, and he splashed it against the sides of the altar. They handed him the burnt offering piece by piece, including the head, and he burnt them on the altar. He washed the internal organs and the legs and burned them up on top of the burnt offering on the altar. Aaron then brought the offering that was for the people. He took the goat for the people's sin offering and slaughtered it and offered it for a sin offering, as he did with the first one. He brought the burnt offering and offered it in the prescribed way. He also brought the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar in addition to the morning's burnt offering. He slaughtered the ox and the ram as the fellowship offering for the people. His sons handed him the blood and he splashed it against the sides of the altar. But the fat portions of the ox and the ram, the fat tail, the layer of fat, the kidneys, and the long lobe of the liver. These they laid on the breasts, and then Aaron burned the fat on the altar. Aaron waved the breasts and the right thigh before the Lord as a wave offering, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Psalms 114. When Israel came out of Egypt, Jacob, from a people of foreign tongue, Judah, became God's sanctuary, Israel his domain. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains leaped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it, sea, that you fled? Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Why, mountains, did you leap like rams, you hills like lambs? Tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water." Okay, I want to summarize where we are in the story of the plagues and bring a few insights from Marty Solomon, Brett Billings, and their sources from mainly Jewish scholarship from the Bema podcast. Marty Solomon brings up how interesting Pharaoh's response to the plagues are and what it might mean. For example, he brings up how in the second plague, the frogs, when Moses asked Pharaoh when he wanted the frogs gone, Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Um, how strange. Wouldn't you want them to be gone now or yesterday if time could be reversed? Then later, in another plague, when the livestock are plagued, we strangely do not read that Pharaoh wanted to check on his own livestock, but instead he asked if the Israelites' livestock are still alive. What Marty Solomon brings up is how Pharaoh seemed unfazed by the power of the plague or the power of God. He seems more concerned with precision. Can God really control the when? And the who? More on this in a minute. Marty also brings up the question many of us probably had, and that's, why is Moses asking for three days instead of forever? Does it seem deceptive? Isn't it 
also odd that when Moses confronts Pharaoh, he is not suggesting that God will up the ante or that Pharaoh should retreat. He's asking for three days. Marty Solomon draws from Rabbi David Foreman's work, The Exodus You Almost Passed Over, to draw our attention to God's tendency not to lead with power, but something else. Well, God certainly used power, and he knows when to say enough, or as sometimes I say his mother, enough is enough. So Foreman's suggestion is that God wants Moses to understand that God doesn't want him to lead with messages of power, but of God's posture, which is linked to the name we see for him in Exodus, Yahweh, that comes from the Hebrew word, I am. There is this, I am the one, the only, this greatness to it this awesomeness and timelessness where God was, he is, and he will always be. Marty Solomon brings it back around to discuss how Pharaoh lived in a polytheistic world of gods, lowercase g. If you listen to previous episodes, you might remember how biblical scholars think that in some specific or general way, the plagues were designed as specific signs and wonders by Yahweh, God, to reveal who he is in sharp contrast to their Egyptian gods, plural. Marty Solomon describes how a god of sun and rain and all the other gods would be in constant conflict to stop and start something with wars and allegiances. And it helps to explain Pharaoh's interest in the precision of a single god that controlled everything and was not locked in conflict with other gods. Pharaoh knew what gods of power were in his culture and way, but he'd never seen a god of precision, a single god who controlled everything. Marty pointed to the example in Exodus 9, where there was hail with fire flashing in it. He described how this would not happen in a polytheistic world. The gods would not work together in a coordinated way that was called on by a person like Moses. In polytheism, individuals have an indirect relationship with their gods, whereas a monotheistic one-god faith requires a direct relationship with the one creator God that is sovereign over it all and has an order, a purpose for which he has designed everything. So Moses is saying to Pharaoh, God wants to be in relationship with him in the desert. Marty Solomon, who is drawing from Rabbi Foreman, describes how this would sound like a ruse and not real to Pharaoh according to his worldview. People didn't have relationships with gods. So Moses rephrased it in a way that Pharaoh would understand it. Our God will be angry if we do not go worship him. Pharaoh still says no, and there is a war on Pharaoh's heart. The Hebrew word for harden is so interesting as we've been talking about um, in these past episodes because it can be heavy or weighty, it can be glory, it can be stubbornness, resolve, or strengthening. It's actually quite nuanced and not as simple as we initially might think. This is important in our takeaway that it's not God wanting to manipulate Pharaoh because there's no mention of God wanting to harden anything. There are statements that God did harden his heart. I still like Father Mike Schmidt's view of our hearts as our decision to make our hearts more of a wax or soft or clay, something firmer. And then when God is present, we either melt or our hearts of clay become hard. Dr. Carmen Imes describes it like a mother telling a child over and over to put a coat on because it's cold outside. And then finally, she gives over to her child's resistance and allows them to go outside without a coat. Mind you, a mother, like God, does pursue you and continue to ask you to put your coat on. But you can still say no, and God will honor your request. This is his permissive will. But at some point, we would freeze to death if we did not make the right choice. Moses is not only bringing the message, but he's being the message in this story. 
He's inviting Israel to be born again. Think of the Passover and how they went through the Sea of Reeds. It reminds me of a communion and baptism in the New Testament. The connections between Exodus and the New Testament are, are simply amazing to me. One last thought on Exodus here that Marty Solomon points to in part four, and he's drawing from Exodus, you almost passed over by Rabbi Foreman to answer the question, why did Moses ask for three days? The rabbi points back to the story of Joseph from Genesis to indicate that if Pharaoh would have said yes, the Israelites would not have left Egypt. But Pharaoh said no, which makes a way for what will be new and next. Marty suggests the book uh, that I mentioned to learn more, and, and there's really cool details in it. Okay, zooming into this story, God is saying, if you do not give me my firstborn, I will take yours. And he's making a way through it, the Passover. What's interesting is that Yahweh is actually claiming the firstborn of Israel too, not just Egypt's. But God is covering or protecting the child of the family who, who chooses him. This is also supported in Numbers uh, 18, 15. I liken it to the story we read um, in Genesis about Abraham and his son Isaac, where Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son, but God protected him and instead sacrificed a lamb. I see so many connections to the Passover here. I see this story a little bit like God speaking to the uh, adversary, the serpent in Genesis 3, and how in Genesis 4 verse 17, it depicts the struggle we as humans would have with the adversary, with sin. The verse says sin is crouching at your door. It desires me, you, but we must master it. In this part of Exodus, we or the Hebrew people are enslaved by something. They were enslaved by Pharaoh. And likewise, post-Genesis 3, enslaved by sin. The adversary is crouching at the door and desires to consume and enslave us. And while we must master it, we can't do it without a savior. That is what we are seeing here in Exodus that we didn't see there. God is directly confronting the adversary and the sin that enslaves his people, and he will rescue us and end the adversarial hold, and he will offer a sacrificial way to atone and pay the debt on our sin. This is how much he loves us. I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge how absolutely hard it is to consider that in the process of God turning evil around on itself, what seems to me to be innocent firstborn sons of Egyptians, particularly when it says the slave sons too were killed, this is hard. While God in Exodus 11 verse 7 is making it clear that he will make a distinction between Egypt and Israel, Dr. Carmen Imes does not see this as an ethnic differentiation, but who you worship distinction. This viewpoint makes more sense when you read the very next uh, verse indicated that, which indicated that Pharaoh will let the Israelites and in quotes, all the people who follow you. Um, This is repeated here in the passage we read today in Exodus 12, verse 38, which states, many other people went up with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. The distinction is more about which brand ambassador will you follow? Is it Yahweh or Pharaoh? The Passover almost interrupts this epic narrative of the Exodus with this performative, multi-sensory ritual that is a foundational event that is to be passed down from generation to generation, according to Tereen Freedom. This becomes the Passover of communion in the New Testament, which Jesus also asks us to do over and over again in remembrance of him. It's also super cool that in verse 2, it's stating that Passover initiative, it creates, starts a new calendar. Time starts over. It's an atonement, a restoration, a redemption. It's just so overwhelming to think about. Dr. Carmen Imes describes Passover as a new creation event, 
where they will now be considered, they're now going to be considered the nation of Israel. It makes me so excited for the future and God's new creation through Jesus. The Passover fulfills God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13 to 16, where God forewarned about the 400 years of slavery and his promise of delivery. God said, this generation's before this point. God fulfills his promises. Again, super cool. Dr. Carmen Imes also makes a really amazing case from sources like Dictionary of Classical Hebrew and Dr. Kutz for thinking about the word Passover, Pesach, more like protect, because in all use cases, it seems like God is using the blood of the lamb over the door to protect the family from the destroyer. It seems like it might be a better interpretation or at least conjures up a more accurate image than the destroyer just passing over. It's God protecting them, covering them, paying the debt through a sacrifice. The Passover is not about being an Israelite, but it's about circumcision or covenant status. Remember, this is a sign that started in Genesis with Abraham. As a woman in modern culture, I'm not going to lie, I feel a little bit left out. But I have to remember that in this culture, women were the property of men, and therefore, by extension, all women were connected with a male protector, small p, because God is the protector, capital P. In the story of the Passover, collectivism in that culture, the family was the point of reference in the culture, not the individual. Conformity is expected in this type of culture, and therefore the pressure for all or most men, and by extension all or most women, to be a part of this would be an adequate assumption. So foreigners who wanted to conform and women are not being left out. Remember, God is revealing himself through culture. God gave humans culture creating, rule and subdue portions of power and authority, right? So we clearly messed it up, our vocation, but God is not trying to take away our role, but restore and redeem us. Therefore, God is not condemning or condoning the culture as a whole. God is revealing himself in, through, and despite it in very specific ways. Something interesting that Dr. Imes brought up, while God is sovereign and the initiator and director, humans are invited to participate in the task of liberation here and now. We continue because he wanted it this way, for us to be a part of the greatest story ever told. Yet we are not being freed from for freedom's sake. Okay, why do you think the Egyptians gave their silver and gold for clothing? Goodwill, payback for slavery, the hope of favor— I really don't know, but Dr. Carmen Imes makes this connection between how Pharaoh's daughter paid Moses' mother to nurse him, so Pharaoh's wealth was being given to a Hebrew family, and now Egyptians are giving their wealth to the nation of Israel. That's interesting. Then we read in Leviticus 9 what is essentially the ordination or bringing in of Aaron and his sons, and now the end verses of the chapter point us to their new position to now bless others, to be intercessors, to um, help others navigate their way. Like I described in yesterday's episode, there seems to be this train-the-trainer model to enrich understanding, build in accountability and sustainable succession that honors the image and the name-bearing responsibilities God gave us. I particularly thought it was awesome how fire came out of the presence of the Lord in the end. That's just too cool. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. 
to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.